Check out our friends at Linquicity Gifts. Linquicity Gifts is a metaphysical store offering natural gemstone bead bracelets, signature and zodiac, designed and made in the United States, as well as raw and polished stones, crystal balls, pendulums, tarot cards, natural crystal points, wands, and so much more. Their beautiful signature design bracelets can aid with creativity, balance, focus, and well-being. Visit their website using the link in the description or visit linguistitygifts.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your first order over $20. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is AP Sylvia. Before I bring him on, I have to thank My Patriot Supply. They are the experts in emergency preparedness. With the unsure future we're facing and the Rona madness still ramping up again, an emergency food supply might not be a bad idea. Right now, you get $70 off a two-week supply and $100 off a four-week supply of their food that stays good in storage for up to 25 years. It tastes great. Uh, just click the link in the description or visit preparewithfkn.com to get your supply today. And please subscribe to our backup channel on lbry.com. Just in case one day you can't find us on YouTube, they decide to get rid of us. You never know. And I want to thank, huge thanks to everyone that has made donations this month. You're all amazing. Um, if anyone like to make a donation, those links are in the description as well. Uh, tonight, I want to welcome A.P. Sylvia. He has been a long time interested in supernatural beliefs and their origins. He has explored the essential texts of vampire folklore and has vis visited various vampire-related locations. He runs the blog locationsoflore.com and his first book, Vampires of Lore, Traits and Modern Misconceptions, came out this past October. AP, welcome. How are you doing tonight? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, um, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. This is going to be very interesting. Um, I've been a fan of vampire movies and books, uh, but our, apparently our modern portrayal of vampires from the original folklore is not accurate, uh, not historically accurate at all. And I enjoy learning new things about folklore and our historical depictions, uh, even accounts of paranormal entities. And pop culture has uh, shaped the depiction of the vampire uh, just as it has with many actual historical accounts uh, that has changed it over the years. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, uh, some historical places, possibly paranormal phenomena and other oddities that you write about in your blog. But first, I'd like to get started with what got you interested really in historical folklore places and vampires sure so um i've always been interested uh in sort of uh supernatural beliefs and the paranormal ever since i was a kid i always uh you know read books about them and things like that uh you know movies and tv shows um and you know if ever there was a documentary on or something i would i would certainly catch those um so i've always had sort of a general interest that's been been with me since i was young um, but uh, a few years ago now, um, I, was in, uh, I was in New York City in Times Square, and um, I was at the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum that they have there. 
And um, there's a number of them around the country and they're, they're full of sort of, um, you know, interesting objects and oddities and all, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, so as I was, uh, as I was walking around there with, uh, with my girlfriend, who's, who's now my wife, uh, we came across um, this one display that was of a, um, according to the label, a 19th century vampire killing kit. And so it was this uh, antique looking box with vials and a stake and a cross and a silver bullet mold and other, and other things. And it, it really just had such a, a great aesthetic to it. It looked so cool. Um, and so, uh, after that, after that trip, I was sort of thinking about that, that kit and I was like, oh, I'd like to learn a bit more about that. So I, I took to the internet and started, uh, started reading, reading up on these kits and there's a number of them around, uh, at other Ripley's and at other museums and things. And I found that there was actually some controversy surrounding them. Um, some, some people maintain that they're, they're, you know, uh, authentic, um, you know, authentic period pieces. Um, other folks claim that they're actually uh, like 20th century construction constructions using period pieces. So someone like took a vintage box and took some uh, a vintage stake and kind of put them together and 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 made this this kit. And one of the arguments for that was that oh well these kits uh, represent sort of um, the uh, our movie notions about vampires like the Hammer horror movies and stuff like that uh, and don't really reflect the folklore. Uh, and so that kind of assertion really got me on 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 this track of like well what did people really believe about vampires in the past? What were the actual beliefs? Because I knew there were some differences just based upon some documentaries I had seen and stuff like that. Um, so I started, I, I, I sort of started looking for like, well, give me a breakdown. I, I want someone to sort of go, go through the vampire trait by trait and tell me like, well, where did all these things come from? Did, you know, is, were these real beliefs? Were these just from movies? Um, and I couldn't really find a comprehensive list like that. And so I started digging a bit more and reading some different things. And I sort of ended up writing the book that I wanted to read. Oh, very cool. And what about these uh, different locations that you write about in your blog? What got you interested in these uh, folkloric locations? Uh, well, you know, I, um, I, I enjoy sort of... Um I enjoy sort of like just going to sort of different places just around my area or if I'm on vacation somewhere or something like that. Because um, there's often sort of cool stories or legends and stuff um, in, in sort of like just sort of offbeat places or, or, you know, places you might not think to look. Um, and so I kind of I kind of enjoy that sort of going to a place that maybe isn't isn't known to the general public necessarily, but, is, you know, is, is known to have sort of um, legends or folklore attached to it. Um, and so I, I would go to those, I would go to those kinds of places from time to time, just even sort of around where I live. Um, and a number of them are um, oriented towards vampires. They, they, they are um, vampire accounts took place there, let's say. Um, so I, I thought it might be kind of fun to share some of the pictures that I took of them and talk about some of the folklore behind them. And so I, I started the blog Locations of Lore. That's kind of another outlet for myself to sort of write about things that I was interested in. Very cool. Now, have you ever had any personal uh, paranormal experiences or anything occur uh, even while you were visiting any of these places? Well, you know, um, nothing, nothing especially profound. I, I will say there was, there was one time where I was, uh, I was um, at this uh, mansion um, and, uh, you know, I, I was, it, it was, it's a place that's open to the public and they do tours and stuff like that. And, um, I was, uh, we were, we were in kind of the main hall, um, waiting for our tour to begin. Uh, and, uh, I, 
everyone heard every, like everyone heard this loud crash and uh we, we look over and one of these these kind of giant doors that were off the main hall that led to a few other rooms um had had closed and a, sort of a number of staff members kind of scurry over to this door and they're kind of messing with it and muscling it and finally they they, they get it open um and there was no one on the other side and i just kind of assumed well maybe somebody bumped it or maybe someone sort of uh kind of went into kind of was hiding in the other room because they were embarrassed that they made a loud noise or something like that or maybe it was just the wind or vibration but the doors were quite large and heavy and i sort of just wrote it off and after the tour i uh i i approached the the tour guide and i i asked oh you know are there any ghost stories or associated uh to to the house and um the uh she immediately without skipping a beat responds oh yes um, Mrs. Crane, who was, who was, uh, you know, who, who lived there, who was, uh, you know, the, the wife of, of Mr. Crane, who had, who had built the place, uh, she, oh, she's still here, definitely. And she, she closes doors, uh, on people and locks them and stuff like that. And the minute she said that, I thought to myself, like, oh, you know, she was, I, I wonder, was that, was that door actually, uh, was, was that a visitor? Or you never know. Maybe it was the, the spectral hand of, of Mrs. Crane. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. You never know. <laughs> so give us uh, a basic overview uh, of your book. What's it all about? Sure. So um, the book is uh, basically a trait by trait analysis. So every, ch every chapter is, um, is uh, it focuses on a specific trait about vampires that we associate to vampires today. So we, there's a trait about blood. There's a chapter about blood drinking, uh, fangs, coffins, um, turning into bats and, you know, sort of all of the things that kind of come to mind when you think of vampires, especially sort of like the, the Halloween vampire. Um, and so every chapter kind of examines this trait. Um, and uh, I look for uh, folkloric precedents. So if I can find actual folkloric tales that involve this, I'll, sh I'll share them if there's legends or beliefs or what have you. Um, I will, I will, I'll talk about those in the book. Uh, if I can't find anything, then I'll try to determine, okay, well, when was this introduced? Was it a product of uh, 19th century literature? Was it a product of movies? And so then I kind of explore when, when that kind of came into being as best I can. And uh, what kind of source material did you use for, for your research and, uh, you know, what, what kind of, uh, you know, historical documents or anything like that? Sure. So that was something um, that I kind of, uh, I realized as I started digging into these things. Um, you need to be careful when you start reading about sort of vampire accounts and stuff like that, because there's, there's different legends and accounts that date back many hundreds of years. Um, and sometimes they'll get retold in, 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 you know, by, you know, modern authors or people write, you know, writing an article on the internet or, or something like that. But you, you need to be a little, little careful because sometimes what can happen either knowingly or not is that um, our kind of preconceived notions about, what we expect of vampires can kind of seep into the retelling of them. And people might sort of interpret things or inject things um, that when you then look at an older version of the story, all of a sudden that stuff might not be there anymore. So I always tried to go, I tried to go back as far as I kind of could. So um, there were some 20th century sources that I used, um, but I tried to be judicious in which ones I used. I tried to pick books that were more scholarly in nature. Um, I tried, I would look at sources from uh, the 1800s, the 1700s, um, or even going back further if I could. Um, so I basically tried to go back kind of as far as, as, far as I could get um, to sort of get the, 
the, the, the kind of untainted beliefs before maybe some of our modern kind of our, our, our modern kind of uh, notions would sort of seep into maybe some of the, the retellings. Now, what is one of the earliest depictions that you found of, of what a vampire is? Sure. Um, so, and I guess the, to a certain extent, this gets into sort of how I defined a vampire um, because that kind of comes into play a little bit. Um, but I can, I can share a tale that dates back uh, to the 12th century um, that was um, uh, occurred in Great Britain. So, I like I like this tale and I like sharing it because it's um, it's kind of outside the time and the place that we tend to think about vampires, right? Most people like when you talk about vampires, you immediately think, okay, you know, Eastern Europe, you know, 1700s, 1800s, something like that. Um, but so this is you know this is 12th century Great Britain. Um, but the story now they don't they don't call this creature a vampire, but in many accounts that you read, they don't necessarily use the term vampire. Vampire was kind of, you know, used in certain tales in specific places and times, but, you know, the, the fear that the dead could cause harm to the living and sort of preserve their own, their own vitality and death um, was a very widespread um, belief, regardless of kind of what, you know, what the term was used or the particulars, and it changed from place to place. But so in this tale... It, it takes place um, in um, Anantis Castle, which is either like uh, in Northern England or, or, or maybe Scotland. Um, and it revolves around this, this fellow who was, um, in life, he was kind of a scoundrel. Um, and, he, and so he, li- he lived in this town and he suspected that his, his wife was uh, cheating on him. So he, he gets this, this scheme in his mind. He tells his wife that he's going away on a trip. He's going to be gone for a few days. And instead of leaving, he climbs up into the rafters uh, to spy on her. And so while he, so while, to catch her in the act. So while he's up, while he's up there uh, spying on her, he, uh, loses his, he loses his footing and falls to the ground and injures himself. And so um, the wife, the wife goes to him and, you know, he's like, I, you know, he's, he said, I caught you cheating. And she's like, oh no, you, you, you're, you're not well, or, you know, whatever. And, and gets him, uh, gets, gets him into, into bed. Um, and uh, they call for the priest to come and give him the last rites. Um, he's, he's still kind of upset from everything and he refuses the last rites. It's, he says, you know, come back tomorrow or whatever. Um, well, by then he he's dead he passes away in that time so you have this fellow who was known to be kind of an evil doer in life uh he died without having last rites so he was in a state he was in a state of sin and he didn't commit suicide necessarily but he died in kind of an unnatural way by you know sort of kind of by his own 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 you know own actions um now these days we wouldn't necessarily think of that as being like a, a cause for a vampire, right? There was no other vampire in play here or anything like that. But in folklore, that's a, that was a great recipe for a vampire. People who were evil in life, if they committed suicide, if they were, you know, dead, died in sin or whatever, um, they, there was, uh, you know, belief that they would come back, you know, uh, as a vampire, as, you know, undead essentially. And that's what happens in this tale. He starts rising from his grave every night, he starts wandering through the, the streets of the town, um, kind of this, this pack of dogs kind of follows him around. Um, and so everyone starts staying inside for fear of being attacked by him. Now, um, that, 
works that sort of works for a little while, but his his breath ends up poisoning the air as the story goes. And so a plague descends upon the town. So um, people start dying and other people start fleeing the town. So eventually not many people are left and the remnants of the town are gathered together uh, one day to kind of figure out what they're going to do next. These two brothers who had lost their father to the, to the disease, they decide that they're going to take action. While everyone else is kind of meeting, they say, you know what, we're going to go and do something because we've lost our father to this, to this you know, corpse and we'll be soon to follow. So they, they dig up the man, they dig up his grave, and when they, they find him, his body is bloated. And as they're, as they're kind of digging him up, they pierce the body and blood comes out. And they say that he, it was as if he was filled with the blood. It was like a leech filled with the blood of many people. Um, and the actual, the term, in, if, you, if you read the Latin version, they use the term sanguisuga, uh, which translates to leech, but quite literally translates to blood sucker, sanguisuga. Um, so they take the body, they remove the heart and, and rip it apart. And then they, they burn the corpse. And by burning the corpse, they destroy this undead menace and the flames have this sort of almost purifying effect on the air and um, dispel the plague. And so the town is saved by these, by these two brothers, you know, as the story goes. And so that's a tale, again, from Great Britain, 12th century, but it's got all these key elements of what I, what I deem to be kind of a vampire tale. Yeah, that's what I want to get into is these these elements of vampire because when you look at modern vampire tales from books and movies from Dracula to even more modern movies like, you know, Lost Boys and and things like that, you have the most common, you know, you have the fangs, you have um, that they can only come out at night, daylight will kill them, yeah. uh, garlic, stake through their heart, all these common things about modern vampires. But when it comes to folklore, what would you say are some of the more common traits of a folkloric vampire yeah well it, it's when i first started tackling the book uh, i realized early on that i had to figure out what as far as i was concerned a vampire was because when you start digging into these tales you know there's a, a rich history of of uh supernatural beliefs and mythology around the world so when you start reading about vampires there's lots of other creatures that often get discussed Right, like oh, there was this this monster that lived in the woods, and it drank the blood of anyone that wandered in, or something like that. And so sometimes, like oh, well, that's like a vampire. Um, but for me, I wanted to kind of hone in on 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 some key elements that I felt really represented maybe sort of the the psychological roots of where vampires were were coming from. So I, I wind up coming with with three criteria that that I use to say, okay, for the purposes of my book, this constitutes a vampire. Um, so the first the first criteria is that the vampire is the corpse of a once living person. So it's not some kind of um, uh, demon or monster or or creature that was never human to begin with, right? Because there are stories like that of these entities that you know were you know would would drink the blood of people or something like that, demons and whatnot. But they were never living people. They were never neighbors or something like that that had passed away. So that was my first thing that the vampire was was once a person who has now died. So that kind of gets into this fear of the dead. Um, the 
the the second thing is that the corpse is harming the living in some way. So I actually broaden it out a little bit beyond just the blood sucking because there's lots of accounts that you know it's this undead person they're cause they are causing fear and illness and whatnot. Blood, the, the, the specifics of blood sucking may or may not be present in the story, but I feel like if you solely focus on, if they don't say blood sucking, don't talk about, you know, that's not, that doesn't count. I feel like you lose way too much if you do that. So to me, it's like the dead are causing harm in some fashion. Um, again, it's this fear of the dead. Uh, and then lastly, uh, to destroy the vampire, action has to be taken against the corpse itself. So there's a physicality to vampires um, un, you know, they're not like sort of these ethereal, untethered, like spirits or ghosts or something like that. There's, there's a physical root to the problem that, that sort of the populace is facing and it's buried in the local cemetery. So there's kind of a, a focal point for, for people to, to, to look towards and say, this is the root of our problem. So those were the, those were the three criteria. Um, and so with that, I kind of was able to focus on what I felt were, were kind of um, the relevant stories for, for my analysis. And, you know, from there, you know, I found, uh, I, f I found a lot of interesting tales. I found, you know, that some of the things that we, uh, we're used to with vampires are present. Um, even if they are, oftentimes there's some nuance that might, we might have lost over time. Um, and then other things, uh, they're, they're not there at all, that they, they just kind of, they, they got introduced somewhere along the line, and now they're kind of with us as if they've always been there. Right. Let's talk about some of those uh, nuances and differences that we see now. What are some of the traits that uh, we don't even hear about anymore that, that are, have been lost completely? Oh, sure. Um, one that gets, one that doesn't get, that doesn't get referenced very often, um, though every now and then it does, um, is um, well, actually, uh, pro probably probably most most people one of one of their first kind of exposures to a vampire character uh, is on Sesame Street, right? The uh, you know the Count von Count, right? Who who loves counting things? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know it's uh, you know it's a fun character, and I think you know usually when people. Uh, see the see the character and, and kind of what he does with all the counting. They just sort of assume, well, it's a play on words. It's a play on him being, you know, his title of count and, he, you know, he's counting things. Um, but funny enough, um, a belief that vampires would obsessively count things is actually found in folklore. Um, although it doesn't get used very often in movies and stuff like that. Every now and then it does come up in a movie. Usually if it does come up, they specifically mention, this is true to folklore because no one's really heard of it. Um, but there were, there were accounts where people would take uh, grains or seeds or what have you, and they would put it in with the grave because they believed that when the vampire would arise, um, it would obsessively count all of the seeds or all the grains and stuff like that. And thus it would do that all night and then it wouldn't go out and attack people. Um, so that was actually, so that's sort of a, a, a belief that, Funny enough, everyone's sort of exposed to probably when, when they're kids, um, but you, so you probably don't think much of it, um, but is actually a, sort of an interesting aspect to folklore. Um, I, what, one of the reasons why it, I, I assume it kind of didn't last was because it, it's sort of an awkward, it's kind of an awkward kind of thing for the vampire to do. Um, there was a, it's actually, it, it does show up in an episode of the X-Files and it's used kind of comically. 
um, because you know, you know, they throw something, the vampire has to like, ah, go over and count it all. Um, but the, you know, the people, you know, in folklore did believe that vampires had these kind of compulsions. Hello friends, Chris Matthew with Forbidden Knowledge News here with a special announcement. We are starting production on the Forbidden Documentary. That's right, we're breaking out the camera, lights, microphone, and hitting the road. This is going to be much bigger than your average conspiracy doc. It's going to be a conspiracy docu-series. And we're going to take all of you on the road with Forbidden Knowledge News, as well as all your favorite guests that have appeared over the years, authors, researchers, scientists, whistleblowers, contactees, fellow broadcasters, and some of you listening as well. The topics will include paranormal, ufology, historical conspiracies, hidden ancient history, current conspiracies, spirituality, cryptids, and much, much more. We're going to visit sacred and spiritual sites and places of high, high strangeness, and hopefully visit with as many of you along the way as possible. This project is currently completely self-funded, and we're asking for your help. We are going to jump into this head first, and hopefully the universe and maybe some of our amazing audience will help a bit. If you'd like to get involved with the production, email me, ForbiddenKnowledgeNews at gmail.com. And if you would like to help by leaving a donation, we have a Buy Me a Coffee or PayPal option. You can go to supportfkn.com or click that PayPal link in the description. Any amount is greatly appreciated and will help tremendously. And if you make a donation through supportfkn.com, you're going to also get access to select chapters from Corey Hughes' upcoming book about the JFK assassination. Be a part of an epic journey of discovery and truth with the Forbidden Documentary. Now, how many um, of these folkloric tales, how much do you think is actual accounts of unexplained phenomenon? And how much is, you know, just things that haven't, uh, you know, haven't been understood at that time period, but we understand it now because of modern science and, and things that we've learned over, over the years? How much do you think was actual genuine, you know, uh, paranormal phenomenon or something unknown? Well, when you get into the accounts that are very specific. So there were some accounts like um, where, where villages thought that they were, you know, that they were in the grip of a vampire and they actually got written about in newspapers and things like that. So when you look at, at those accounts where you get a lot of details, um, then it, it, as you kind of, as you sort of analyze it all, um, it becomes, it becomes rather apparent that they probably were sort of misinterpreting things that we understand today that they that they didn't have the benefit of um back then um uh, there's uh you know in in my book i talk about the work of uh the scholar paul barber who kind of he he put forward this theory that um a lot of these vampire beliefs stemmed from uh misunderstanding of the decomposition process and you and uh, it's 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 fascinating stuff. And when people would do these exhumations, they would see things that just didn't make sense to them. Um, of course, when you get into you know other legends about people um, fearing, you know, believing that they were being visited in the night by by you know the the image of someone they knew. Um, obviously, that kind of thing features in a lot of spiritual beliefs uh, and things like that. So you know. 
how, you know, how much of that might be interpreted that way. Uh, it's hard to say because obviously some, some, some of them, some of these things are more like, they're a bit more in the mists of time kind of thing. They're kind of foggier and they're more like legends and stuff like that. But the ones where we really get a lot of good detail, the ones that, you know, say made it into newspapers or, you know, were written about in that way. Um, you can see that, that in those cases, it does seem that there was, um, something was going on that was making people scared. Um, they were interpreting things a certain way. Some people were saying they were being visited in the night by these people. Um, you can interpret that kind of however you want. The exhumations, um, a lot of that seems to be able, to, and what they saw seems to be able to be explained by some, uh, by the sort of science of decomposition. Now, uh, when did this eventually, uh, you know, become a more widespread belief and spread uh, beyond Europe? Uh, and what, you know, what other types of uh, accounts were there besides the ones found in Europe? So I think, you know, I, I think these uh, beliefs surrounding sort of the fear of the dead and what the dead could do. I think they're found in various countries. And I think, you know, beliefs kind of, grow, you know, grow and change and, and, and uh, kind of influence, you know, kind of influence each other. Um, I do think ultimately, though, this, this fear of the dead is something that's probably kind of uh, more of like kind of um, psychologically embedded I think in humanity. So I think it, it, it's, it's likely that it's sort of uh, evolved and kind of came up sort of independently in a lot of different places. Um, but I mean, in my book, I, I talk about there's, um, there were beliefs, so you can kind of, you know, you have, you have sort of the, the, you know, Eastern European countries, but then, you know, as you kind of, you, you spread out, you've got account, you've got beliefs, say, you know, Germany, uh, Greece, Greece has a strong tradition of, of vampires there. They're known as the Vrikalakis, um, Russia, the Nordic countries. I mentioned Great Britain earlier. Um, uh, there was belief, there were beliefs in uh, vampire, like vampire-like beings in China. I talk about one in my book, the Qiangxi, which was like an undead per person who, you know, who was terrorizing a, a village. Um, the beliefs actually even spread uh, over into um, the new world. Uh, there are accounts from New England of these vampire, these vampire incidents. And those are actually some of the places that I've uh, visited the graves of these suspected vampires. I've visited some of those and I talk about those in my blog. So you find that you find them in, in a variety, variety of places, a variety of forms. They're not, it's not all necessarily the same. There's a lot of kind of variation and nuance to them, but I think, you know, getting back to my, my sort of three criteria, a lot, the core of it all seems to kind of be there, this fear that the dead pose or potentially pose some kind of threat to the living and that they can sort of, you know, preserve their life and take life away from the living. They're going to make, they'll make you like them, so to speak. And then, you know, something has to be done to protect yourself. Now let's talk about some of the individual traits uh, that have come along, uh, starting with the blood drinking. Um, when did that become more of a, a prevalent trait in, you know, for folkloric vampires? Sure. The, well, you know, blood, sort of the, the, the connections between blood and kind of life force or vitality are, are really ancient, right? If you, if you look at the, um, the, the classical epic there, the Odyssey, right? It, in that story, Odysseus, at one point, he kind of, he goes to the, like the gates of Hades and he has his men dig a trench and they fill it with uh, the blood of sheep. 
And suddenly all these wraiths from the underworld start coming up and approaching the trench. And he keeps them away except the ones that he wants to talk to. And those he wants to talk to, he lets them approach the trench and drink the blood. And once they consume the blood, then they can speak to him. Now, these aren't vampires. They're ghosts, really. But you have this kind of connection of, of blood sort of imbuing life, imbuing vitality, right? So this is an ancient kind of thing. This is kind of a... Uh, ancient sort of association or symbolism. Um, a story that sort of maybe uh, b- uh, brought it to, to the attention of many, of, of many people uh, was in uh, the 1720s. There was a case of um, uh, Peter Plagojewicz uh, uh, who, who, who died. He was uh, a villager uh, in, this, in this town in Serbia. And he, he passes away and the villagers uh, start thinking that he's, he's terrorizing them in the night. And uh, uh, people, uh, other people start dying. And some of them say, oh, he, he came to me in the night and he laid on top of me and strangled me. And so the people go to um, their, this government official and they're like, look, we, wanna, we need to dig this guy up because, you know, this is, uh, th- th- we're, we're in trouble if we don't. And the government official is kind of like, uh, let me ask my boss, let me ask my superiors. And the people are like, no, we're going to do this. Otherwise, we're all just going to leave the village. So he goes, okay, okay. So they go, they dig up, they, they dig up the body of this man and um, they see these. They see these things. Um, the condition of the corpse surprises them. It seems to them unexpected and unnatural. Uh, he seems to be very well preserved. Uh, he seems like he's got like uh, like new skin and nails. And and one of the things they notice is that there is blood around his mouth. And so they see that and they go, oh, that's the blood that he, he drank from from his victims. Right? They didn't really mention blood drinking prior to this. Right? They mentioned he was strangling people and stuff, but they see that and then, then they make this connection. Now, um, the blood or, flu- or you know, something that flu that looks like blood can appear around the mouth um, as, as sort of a natural part of decomposition. Um, but, you know, these people didn't know that. I think probably a lot of people today don't necessarily know that. Um, so they took that and they were like, that's, there's, there's the blood drinking. So you, have, so you have this interesting kind of marriage of A, sort of these associations of blood and life force that go back into, you know, sort of, you know, you know go back in history. And then you have this, this, uh, this decomposition process that kind of ties it, ties it together. And this, uh, this account got published in a newspaper and it's, it's kind of one of these well-known accounts. That's interesting. Um, what about fangs? When did uh, fangs become a, a thing with vampires? So that that one, I always I, I always feel like I'm uh, I'm raining on people's parade when I talk about fangs. Um, it's funny because they're so iconic to vampires today. Like you know, it's it, I, I always say if you're watching a show and like you know somebody you know stares menacingly at the camera and they they smile and you see the two extended canines, you immediately go, oh, they're a vampire. Um, Fangs actually do not feature in folklore. They, they, they don't come up. They're not mentioned. There are a couple of accounts that mention that the vampire had elongated teeth. Now, people will sometimes read that and go, oh, they mean fangs. It's like, well, they actually they didn't say fangs. 
they 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 could have said they could have said fangs they could have said you know then the canines were they didn't they said elongated teeth so that would imply kind of all of their teeth and that can that can be interpreted as maybe like receipt like the gums receding due to decomposition let's say um but those 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 references are few and far between anyway doesn't get mentioned a lot of, you know, the, the elongated teeth in general doesn't get mentioned much at all. It's, that's, that's, that's not that often. Um, when fangs actually got introduced was in um, 19th century literature. So there was this, in the 1840s, there was this uh, Penny Dreadful which is like a, you know, it's a serialized, um, you know, uh, fictional work. So it, you know, as little chapters come out over the course of time and it was very long running and it was called Varney the Vampire. And it, it, the, the main character was Sir Francis Varney, who was a vampire. And in this, in this Penny Dreadful, uh, it mentions the, the vampire, it mentions the vampire's tusk-like teeth and mentions specifically and mentions the two incision marks on the neck. And so that's another thing that's missing from folklore, the whole, the, the two, the two marks on the neck that, you know, is always the indication that I was a vampire. That's not, that's, that never comes up in folklore. Um, but so it was, it was, it was this kind of 1840s pain dreadful that then it got assembled into a very long book. Um, that's, that's actually the first time that it's, that it's really introduced. Um, and sort of, you know, it then got, it then sort of stayed with, um, you know, uh, stayed with literature, um, you know, probably most famously, it's, it's incorporated into uh, Stoker's novel, Dracula. And from there, you know, all of our, you know, movies and whatnot. Man, can't believe it. Vampires didn't have fangs. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a, let, <laughs> it's it's a, kind of a letdown. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of a letdown. <laughs> well, what about, uh, what about coffins? Uh, how, what is, how much is that is accurate in folklore? So there's, there's, um, that's always something that's a little bit interesting because, in the vampire movies, usually um, there's oftentimes like a shot of like the vampire like slowly moving the lid of the coffin over, maybe like with you know with the the kind of the hand like kind of artistically reaches around the coffin, slides it over, and it's in maybe their their crypt or a dungeon or something like that, right? Um, so did people so. Did vampires reside in graves and coffins uh, in folklore? Yes, they did. However, oftentimes they were buried, right? Like they were buried under like feet of earth. Um, so to me, the interesting thing was more like, well, how the heck are they getting out every night? Um, if they're covered under, you know, multiple feet of dirt, right? They're, they, you know, they're going to like dig their way out or something. The movies, that's never a problem because they're not really buried underground. They're usually in a crypt or mausoleum or something like that. Um, it's a bit more efficient. Um, so in folklore, there, I guess I should first say, oftentimes um, it's not necessarily discussed in a lot of these accounts. It's basically sort of taken as somehow the vampire is doing this. And I think probably people were, they were, there was some kind of, they were gripped by fear and hysteria. So they didn't necessarily care how the vampire was getting out. Um, it, it must be based upon what they were seeing. Um, there were some folkloric beliefs where the vampire never actually needed to leave the ground. Um, in Germany, there was a belief uh, of a vampire called a, a Naxorer, and it would chew in its grave. And the act of chewing, it would like, uh, would like, you know, like consume its shroud and whatnot. That was believed to cause illness and death. Uh, in family members. Um, so like those vampires didn't need to, th those beliefs, they didn't need to leave. Um, there was, um, there was uh, a, a book written by, um, 
he was um, an abbot, uh, Dom Augustin Calme in the 1700s. And he, he wrote this, he wrote a book uh, talking about supernatural beliefs and kind of analyzing them uh, and goes into detail about vampires. He was trying to figure out, you know, is this vampire phenomenon we're hearing about, is this legitimate? Is this real or is this not? Because he felt like, you know, the church needed to, if it's legitimate, then it's the devil and the church needs to address it. Or if it's not real, then the church should educate people that they shouldn't be worried about this thing. So he was kind of, um, he speculated like, well, how is it that the vampire is leaving its grave at night? Uh, And he wondered if like, well, maybe the vampire through the work of the devil has the ability that to change its, its form such that it takes on like the quality of water so it could pass through the dirt without disturbing it. Um, so that was kind of, that was what, or he, you know, that was kind of one of his, one of his ideas. He also wondered if maybe, you know, well, maybe the vampires aren't real at all. It's, it's, it's the work, you know, maybe angels or demons can, can make these manifestations happen. It's like an illusion. Um, there were, there's, there's one really uh, interesting tale where um, this vampire was torment, was tormenting people. And these, these monks, uh, stay up one night to like slay it, and they f- and all the monks they're outside they're cold they all go they all go to like inside to to warm up except for one monk and when the one monk is there then the vampire knows that he that's his best chance so he leaves his grave and the monk chases him and so the vampire runs back to his grave and the the account actually mentions that the ground opened up for him and the grand vampire went back into the ground um, the monk actually was able to like. Uh, hit him with an axe, I think, um, as he was escaping. And then the next morning, all the monks dig up the vampire and there's the wound from the axe. Um, so that's, that's kind of a fun one. And there's actually other beliefs too, where they believe that a hole, a small hole in the ground near a grave would actually be an indication that it was a vampire because the small hole was how the vampire escaped. So in those beliefs, the vampire probably had some kind of transformative ability so it wasn't necessarily always like a whole person. It maybe turned itself into, you know, mist or whatnot and was able to escape the, through the hole and then form itself again. So there was a number of different kind of takes on how it got out of its grave, out of its coffin, um, which I think, are, I, I think are interesting because it's something that in fiction is never really a problem or not really addressed that much. Um, but in folklore, people kind of had to tackle this sort of thing. Right. Yeah, it is very interesting. Now, in the movies and books, when it comes to killing the vampire, we have the garlic, steak through the heart, sunlight. I don't know if I'm, I'm missing anything, chopping off a head. So, so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about some of those. Uh, where does that uh, originate? Uh, let's start with the garlic and then get to the sunlight and the steak through the heart. Sure, sure. So um, garlic uh, is actually very present in folklore. That's that's that that's. Uh, uh, well-established um, people would uh, they would they would take garlic and they would uh, they might actually like rub garlic around like entrances to their homes doors and and, and keyholes and, and whatnot um, there absolutely was a belief that garlic um, would uh, would keep vampires away um, the uh, the rationale for that is is kind of is kind of interesting. Garlic has kind of for, ever since ancient times there there was a lot of associations to garlic. It was thought to be sort of you know uh, do different things curative or keep keep you know vicious animals away and stuff like that. Um, so it's 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 possible that kind of just 
um, on uh, kind of the laundry list of things garlic could do, vampires sort of made made its way onto the onto that list. Um, but one in, one interpretation I thought was interesting was that um, you know garlic is uh, has a very pungent aroma, so it can be used to mask the smells of other things. Right now, vampires uh, were thought to smell very badly because they're a corpse. Um, so the smell of the garlic would overpower the smell of the vampire. And then I guess through sort of magical means, the garlic, the garlic by, by keeping the smell away, you actually kept the vampire itself away, which is kind of an interesting uh, interpretation. But yeah, the garlic was, was uh, cer- certainly uh, present in, in uh, these um, folklore and, and, and uh, these kinds of beliefs. What about the uh, daylight killing vampires? Oh yeah. Um so daylight uh is actually um that is not present in in folklore which uh probably surprises people because that's pretty well established in 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 movies and stuff like that that the vampire if they go out in the daylight they get you know they turn to dust or what you know they get burned and they turn to dust. Um that's uh and you know, even if it is, uh, even if there's a show where they that doesn't happen to them, you usually have to like explain that that doesn't happen to them because it's sort of the expectation that 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 an audience would have. Um, in folklore, there are some accounts that, first of all, vampires were normally nocturnal in these in these stories and accounts and all that. They were attacking people at night. Now, in in some of these beliefs, it is said that vamp- that sometimes the vampire was seen during the day. They saw it. They saw it walking around, or something like that. So, in those beliefs, the vampire wasn't limited to the nighttime. That the vampire could be out and about during the day if it wanted to be. Um, there are a number of other tales where they kind of follow a pattern where um, someone is being chased by a vampire at night, um, and you know the vampire is just about to get them, and then uh, the rooster crows, and at this point in in the tale, the vampire falls lifeless to the ground. Now, reading that, you might think, oh, well, there's the sunlight destroying the vampire. But the, as you read, when you read a number of these tales, it, some of them make it quite clear that the vampire wasn't killed or, or destroyed or anything at sunrise. It just became lifeless again. And the kind of the assumption being that the next evening it was going to come back to life again. You know, there's there's one tale where this vampire actually is he uh, meets up with this this soldier encounters this vampire and the vampire actually kind of explains to him that like well to actually kill me because the vampire's in his hubris because he was planning on killing the soldier he tells the soldier oh to actually kill me you need to like you know do x y and z and so this so the, then the vampire attacks the soldier the soldier is able to fend him off long enough that the daylight comes the vampire's lifeless and then they can actually do what the vampire said. Um, so at best in folklore, a vampire was lifeless during the day, but certainly not killed or destroyed or anything like that. And when you look at the, the beliefs, um, it kind of makes sense, right? Because, you know, if you think of these beliefs coming out of people um, being uh, afraid or desperate, right, there's, there, you know, some, there's some kind of illness or disease that's descended upon their, their community, they're looking for answers. They're looking for a, a reason and, and something, something to take action against. So they dig up this corpse because they feel like this corpse is the cause of this problem. And, you know, they, you know, think about it. They open up the coffin. They see these, these, this, this body that to them is exhibiting the signs of a vampire. Leaving it out in the sun for 10 minutes 
probably wasn't going to provide the catharsis that they were looking for as a community. They needed to feel like they did something. And so just having the sunlight on it for a little while probably wouldn't, wouldn't cut it. Um, so when sunlight actually comes in, uh, comes into play here is there was, um, a movie, um, in the 1920s, a black and white silent film, uh, called Nosferatu. It's a German film. Um, the, uh, you've, um, you know, most people have probably seen some of the imagery from it at very least the main vampire in it. Uh, he's bald with pointy ears and he's got, you know, these like pointy, yeah, like, very classic of, uh, image. Yes. Very, very, very classic, very sort of classic. Um, and the imagery gets used a lot in that movie. Um, they, well, <laughs> the, the, it's, it's fun. The, the, it's a, the, the story around the movie is kind of interesting. The, the production company Prana film wanted to do a Dracula movie, but they didn't have the rights to Dracula. So to avoid getting sued, they change a bunch of details so they change character names and some of the plot points and stuff like that. The main, the main vampire in it is named Count Orlock. And so in, the mo- in this movie, they have this book that explains this vampire killing ritual where this, uh, so, uh, someone has to willingly give themselves over to the vampire for, for the night so the vampire will feed on them all night until dawn. At that point... When the, dawn, when the sun rises, the vampire will be destroyed. And that's what happens in the movie. Orlock feeds on this woman all night long. As he's leaving, uh, he, he goes in front of a window and the sun, um, the sun peeks up over the horizon. And he does this kind of dramatic shift um, and you know, holds his holds his 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 arm his hand up um, in this sort of like you know sort of tragic way. And then the next the next frame is is smoke rising from the ground. Um, so that's actually the first time that that sunlight kills a vampire. Um, it's interesting though, because depending on how you want to interpret the movie, it might not have been the sunlight itself that killed the vampire. It might've been actually been the whole ritual, which included a willing sacrifice. Um, so the, the potentially our notion of sunlight killing the vampire um, might have actually been from a slight misinterpretation of the film. But I mentioned that the film, they changed a bunch of details uh, to avoid getting sued. Um, but that didn't work. Uh, Bram Stoker's widow uh, sues, sues the company Prana Film, and uh, the judge rules that, uh, that they are in violation and that all copies of the film are to be destroyed. Um, but thankfully, some copies survived that purge, and so we still have the, the movie today. Wow, that's that's very interesting. Yeah. Now, uh, before we move away from uh, vampire folklore and get into some other things on your blog, uh, first I want to go over the the final, um, I guess, uh, killing of a vampire, the stake through the heart. Um, give us a little history on that, and then I have an, I have one more thing that, that I want to talk about vampires with you with. Sure. So stake uh, stake through the heart uh, is certainly present in folklore. It's used in a variety of tales. It comes up that they that they stake the vampire um, as to either kill it or as part of kind of a, a succession of things they're doing to try to kill it. Um, but there's way more, there's a lot more nuance in, in these tales than kind of we're used to with stakes. So usually with um, in, in movies or something like that, it's like a wooden stake, you know, through the heart and that kind of almost magically kills the vampire, right? Like the, the, the vampire, you know, the vampire might've gotten shot a bunch of times and it's fine. And then like it kind of, it's, it's lunging towards the, you know, the hero and the hero grabs the stake and they kind of, they stake the vampire in the heart and the vampire's dead, something like that. 
or maybe they kind of sneak up on the vampire while it's lying in its coffin and they, and they, 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 they nail it in. Um, the thing, the, the interesting thing in, in folklore, first of all, is that uh, there were beliefs that the type of wood used was important. So you couldn't just use, so in, in some of these places, you couldn't just use any wood. You had to use a specific, a specific type of wood. So depending on the place, it might be hawthorn, uh, uh, white thorn, oak. Um, usually the, one of the explanations I ran across for this is that um, depending on the place, those woods were associated, they had religious connotations, essentially. They were associated to the crucifixion. So uh, probably using that wood maybe kind of imbued the stake with some kind of religious or spiritual power. But the other thing that's interesting is that in some of the accounts, the wording that's used is that um, they, they talk about staking the vampire, um, so, you know, pinning it to the ground is, is, uh, is, is kind of a phrase, phrase that's used in some of these tales. And that's interesting because then the stake kind of takes on this very kind of practical role of that you were actually staking the vampire through the body into the ground so that it couldn't sit up anymore. It was stuck to the ground by virtue of the stake. It was pinned in there the way you sort of, you know, you know, if you're putting up a tent, you, you know, you stake it, you stake its ends to the ground. So, so there's interesting. So there's sort of maybe sort of a, a spirit, sort of a, a religious or spiritual aspect to it. There's a very sort of practically minded aspect of it, of like you're physically preventing this thing from getting up. Um, and then, of course, you know, the destruction, uh, going through the heart, the destruction of the heart, there were other beliefs uh, around destroying the heart in some fashion. The heart, of course, being associated with life, being associated with blood and something like that, that also probably adds to the power of that, is that you're, you're you know, destroying the heart in the process. Um, so staking uh, certainly comes up. Usually, though, in, in these kinds of tales, the ultimate way to get rid of the vampire was by burning the body. So that would usually, so in some accounts, they like, they try a few different things or they'll do this, they'll do that. And then they burn the body. And by, by burning the body, you've essentially, you've destroyed the thing that was, that was harming you. There's no, there's, there's the, you know, I talk about the physicality of vampires. Well, it's not there anymore. Right. So there, there's nothing to rise up from the grave anymore. You've, you've, you've literally turned it to ashes. So that often was kind of the final resort when dealing with vampires is that, all right, we'll burn it. And so there's, so there's nothing left of it. And now there's, there's nothing to harm us. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, uh, before we move on uh, to other things that you've written about in your blog, I'd like to get your thoughts on like what you would consider modern vampirism, people that practice uh, these, I guess, uh, spiritual practices, you could call them, um, people that even drink people's blood. Uh, they have these conspiracy theories of how elites uh, have this um, black market blood trade or something going on. You know, all these, all, all these different stories having to do with uh, types of vampirism, I guess. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on uh, modern day with that? Yeah, well, there, there uh, I certainly have uh, run across some information about there are sort of communities of, of people who um, some folks, they, they just like the vampire aesthetic, right? So they kind of, they just sort of dress in, uh, in a certain way and, and um, decorate their houses in a certain fashion or something like that. They just sort of, they, they, they like the look of that and presenting that way. Um, I am aware that there are, there are some folks out there that believe that um, they do need to consume uh, small amounts of blood from, from willing participants uh, in order to kind of feel normal, that kind of thing. 
Um, and then I know there, there are uh, other, other, other groups of people who believe that they're like psychic vampires. So they need to kind of absorb psychic energy from, from other people. Um, so I have run across, um, I've run across some information uh, about, about that. Um, ultimately, that, that wasn't the, the focus of my book. I was, I'm more concerned with sort of the, the history and the legends and the folklore. So I haven't researched that that much. I, I haven't reached out to those people and talked to them. Um, and that would probably be what you'd really want to do to really, to, to really find out, find out more, um, more about it. Um, I will also say that, you know, there are, there are, you know, in some remote places, um, I, I read, I, you know, read, uh, there was one account I read about because um, it made the, the international news from the 2000s uh, in a, a remote village in, in Romania where people did still believe in the folkloric vampire and someone in the community passed away and people believed that um, that they were being uh, sort of, uh, they, were, they were ill because of him. They were, being, they were sort of being attacked by him. And then they, they took action uh, against the corpse. Um, and so, and this was in the, this was in the 2000s. So the actual folkloric belief does still kind of exist out there and, and maybe some small pockets. It does sort of, it is still kind of culturally relevant to, to, to certain, certain groups. Very good. Now, um, I want to talk a little bit about your blog, Locations of Lore. I was going over some of the uh, articles you wrote, and you wrote one about sorcery at the Tower of London. And the Tower of London has a, a very intriguing history to begin with, uh, but this uh, story was very interesting, I thought. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the, that, uh, that particular story, uh, the sorcery at the Tower of London? Sure. Uh, yeah, so the, the Tower, you know, I mean, the Tower of, of London is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's done a lot of things in its day. Um, it's, uh, it was, you know, originally uh, constructed for kind of defense and, and sort of uh, uh, imposing kind of the, the, the royal, you know, the, you know, the royal authority over the populace. Um, it, it, it was, uh, it was uh, like a mint. The mint was there at one point. Uh, it, famously, it was, a, it was used to house prisoners. It was a jail. Um, it's, uh, there've been some executions on the, on the site. There was a menagerie there with animals. Um, it's, it's a really cool place to visit if, if, um, you know, if you are, if uh, anyone's ever in, in London. Um, so I kind of, I wanted to, I wanted to write about it. Um, but it was kind of a daunting task. Cause I was like, ah, oh, there's like so much history to the tower of London. Um, and, it, and it's like, you know, I, I've, I've heard, you know, I've heard many times about the ravens that are there. Um, you know, there's the, they keep ravens on site at the tower. And there was uh, this belief that um, if that one, uh, there was a, a king who wanted to get rid of the, like who was asked to get rid of the ravens. Cause they were, they were, uh, I think they were getting in the way of the Royal observatory there. Um, but then the king was informed that there was this prophecy that if the ravens ever left the tower, the tower would fall. And so would the kingdom. So now that's like, it was decreed that there would always be ravens there. Um, so if you go to the tower, you will see like ravens around. Um, and they have cages for them and stuff, but the ravens, they actually just let them like wander around, which was kind of funny. Like I was like standing on some stairs and like there was a raven just right on the railing, like right, right near me. I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, Hey, um, they're big too. They're, 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 they're pretty, they're pretty cool. Oh, that's um, pretty so interesting. I, yeah. So, so, and there's different ghost stories there. Um, you know, to, you know, people who have seen the, you know, ghosts of people who are executed and whatnot. Um, but for so I was kind of like, oh geez, like how, so how do I how do I tackle the Tower of London? Um, so when I walked into one of the rooms there, in the Salt Tower, um, 
potentially they kept salt there at one point because it was valuable. Um, there was this, um, there were carvings in the wall from prisoners. Um, a lot of the carvings, they were, um, they were done by like Jesuit priests um, uh, when they were, you know, when they were being persecuted. But there was this one carving that was very ornate, this very intricate um, at, uh, carving uh, of like, it was like an astrological chart with symbols and, sphere, and a sphere and all this stuff. And I was like, I was like, what, what is this thing? This thing's awesome. I was like, it's, it's just so, this is so cool. Um, and so when I was, uh, I was, I was looking, I was looking at it. I took some, I took some pictures of it and it was basically this, it, what happened was there was this, this fellow um, back in the 16th century named uh, Hugh Draper and he was arrested for sorcery. Um, so he was, he was accused of sorcery that he was kind of, uh, bewitching someone who was well-to-do. He was an innkeeper, he was a, an innkeeper, Hugh Draper, and he gets thrown in the tower. Um, and, um, apparently he, when he, when he was arrested, he, he told them that he used to, he used to be interested in magic. He used to practice it, but had, had burned his books. Um, and so was no longer practicing magic and had never taken any magical action against the, the, the people. Uh, so essentially denying the accusations. Um, but he was, he was imprisoned there. And while he was there, he carved this very intricate, um, uh, kind of astrological chart into the wall, and um, it's it's still there today. We're not sure what happened to him. Um, one of the accounts of the 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 person who ran the the jail uh, said that he he was ill at the time. So some hypothesize that the position of the chart might have been that he he was having trouble standing, so he was sitting on the ground to do it. But it might have just been more comfortable because uh, he had a lot of time on his hands because it's, it's you know imagine carving this thing you know day in day out. But um, it was so. That, that, that was just an interesting story that I had never really been exposed to when, when I've sort of watched things about the tower or, re- or, read, or read articles. So I tried to focus in on something that maybe people hadn't heard of that much. And I, I share like, you know, the, the picture I took of it along with various other pictures of, of the tower. And I also talk about some of the other ghost stories there. And I talk about the Ravens and stuff like that too. But I kind of wanted to take a different angle on the, on the tower just because, so, I mean, books have been written on this thing. So I was like, oh, what am I going to do on a blog post? Yeah, very cool. And I also saw your article about the uh, the crystal skull at the British Museum. That's another one of those things that, you know, is it a real uh, authentic um, item, artifact, or is it just a recreation of something? Uh, it is it is a rather interesting item. Um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the crystal skulls and uh, the one you wrote about at the British Museum. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, the there's a lot of... Um, uh, sort of legend around the crystal skull and stuff like skulls around that there's, there's um, you know a number of them and they some people believe that they're they contain uh, they're like computers in a way like that contain sort of mystical knowledge and stuff like that that's kind of embedded in the crystals and and uh, and, and whatnot and there's a number of kind of key skulls uh, around um, you know I think probably like probably maybe the most famous one or one that kind of brought the, the notion of crystal skulls to promise was like the Mitchell Hedges Hedge and skull. That was, that's the one that um, I'm probably mispronouncing this now um, that had the, uh, the, that was like a two piece skull that had like the jaw and the, the head, but the British museum skull, um, you probably, I mean, you probably know more about the, the skulls than I do. I just, I just ran across one at the, at the British museum and, and have a general understanding. I am in no way an expert on crystal skulls. So, so apologies to all the crystal skull experts who are like rolling their eyes at me right now. Oh, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm the, the vampire, expert either. I'm the vampire I guy. I don't know. 
Yeah, I do find it fascinating, though. It is, yeah, and so this one at the British Museum, it was believed to be kind of ancient in origin, but then uh, subsequently, I think, you know, they did some studies on it, and, and those studies determined that it was, it was, I think, you know, made during like the, the 1800s or something like that, because they, they thought it was, they'd use modern tooling with it. Um, I just, I, I, I just think they're, they're just sort of, um, they're just sort of what these, I, I just, I just, I love, I love the, the look of them. I love the, the aesthetic of them. I, I, I like the, the, the mystique around the crystal skulls. So when I was at the British Museum, I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta find, cause I knew they had a skull there. So I'm like, I gotta check this thing out and, uh, and uh, t- take a picture of it and, and, and share, and share a little bit about it uh, uh, on the blog. Uh, and it was really, it was really cool. It was cool. It was cool to see. I'm glad they have it on exhibit. Um, you know, they, they, they have, cause there's just interest. There's just interest in it. Whatever, whatever you believe about it, if you believe that there's, there's mystical origins to some of the skulls or whether you just think they're really cool pieces of art, it's, it's nice. It's nice to, it was nice to see one. Right. Definitely. And there was one more thing that I want to talk about, uh, from your blog, the, uh, spirits machine in Massachusetts. Yeah. Tell us about, yeah. I've never heard of that before. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, that was, that was, that was interesting. Um, so yeah, the spirits machine at higher, at, at high rock. So high this rock, was, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that, that one, I, I, I kind of, I, I got a kick out of, I got a kick out of this story. Um, so it, it basically revolves around this, this guy, um, John Murray Spear, who was, um, he was a, a minister, but then he he kind of transitioned to like the spirit the, to spiritualism and the spiritualist movement um, in in the 1800s, and he believed that he was in contact with um, spirits um, uh, these kind of uh, these kind of wise spirits um, like uh, people like like Thomas Jefferson and stuff like that were talking to him, and he so he thought he was in communication with these people who had kind of you know. Uh, this sort of secret knowledge and stuff. And he believed that he was being instructed by the spirits to build a a machine that would uh, essentially generate, it was called the new mode of power. It would generate, it would, it would be an unlimited source of energy. It would generate energy um, sort of forever, like perpetual motion. Um, And so he, he, he sort of, and he had, he did not have apparently a background in, 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 you know, engineering or anything like that, but he thought the spirits were telling him what to do. So he put together this machine uh, at high rock. Uh, it was, it was a great expense at the time. Um, and uh, he also believed that it was going to be in sort of imbued with like a, a living spirit that would kind of give it life. Um, so like this, this, uh, 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 this woman, um, believed that she was sort of going into this labor, like, but, but she was giving birth to the spirit. She wasn't really pregnant, but like, she believed that she was sort of, uh, she was carrying the spirit inside of her and they kind of had this kind of ceremony where she kind of gave birth to the spirit. And then it would, it would, um, it would uh, go into the machine and animate the machine. And this was going to be like this great gift to humanity, essentially. Um, so, you know, this, this all happens and, you know, the machine, uh, the machine kind of, it, it was supposed to like represent a human, but it didn't, wasn't supposed to look like a, like a human. Um, but it had kind of like these arms and these spheres that hung from it and stuff like that. And so apparently when, when, when it was all, all, all done, like it, 
he thought it moved and some other people thought it had moved and like, oh, it's, it's come to, it's, it's, a, it's alive, right? And so people would sit with it and try to imbue it with energy and stuff. But um, ultimately, uh, it, people kind of, they, they ultimately realize that like, it's not really moving. Like the, the things that are dangling from it might move from vibration and whatnot, but the actual mechanism that was actually really supposed to turn and generate the power, um, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't doing anything. Uh, so eventually he, he leaves, he takes, he takes the, you know, this, he takes the machine with him, I think, to, to, uh, New York state. And according to, according to Spear, uh, an angry mob at some point comes along and destroys it. Um, you know, his, and I think they, I mean, they were using all kinds of this, 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 this very like flowery language to describe this thing. And, you know, when it first was done, like, you know, it was this new Messiah and stuff like that. So, so people apparently destroy it. Although some folks wonder was Spear just kind of like done with this thing and just said it was destroyed just to kind of put an end to the whole endeavor. Um, but it was, it was a very interesting kind of, uh, it was a very interesting kind of tale, um, you know, and it, it kind of showed sort of how how spiritual beliefs can motivate people to do things. Um, and, you know, I, it seems that he, he truly believed in what he was doing and thought he was, he was, he was going to be helping humanity, but, you know, it, it obviously uh, didn't materialize. Um, but it was a very kind of, you know, interesting anecdote in sort of the, the spiritual beliefs and how they were changing in the, the 1800s where they, you were kind of getting this like, merger of 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 spirituality and science um because you know the spirits were informing him how to build a machine to generate so you you could see kind of the the popular views how, how they were sort of changing at that time too so it embodies that quite nicely right well ap i want to thank you so much for coming on i have one more question for you with everything that's happening with the coronavirus lockdowns you know there isn't much production of movies um you know we do have a lot more um podcasts we have uh, book opportunities what do you think is going to happen with vampire lore in the future do you think it's going to be around to stay um do you think it's going to evolve keep evolving or do you think it may just uh, fade away eventually um you know, I, I think it's, I think it's going to stay with us. Uh, the thing that I found most interesting about, about vampires is their adaptability. Vampires have been changing over the course of time to meet the needs of, of, of people, whatever they might be, whether you're talking in say the, the 1700s where people, they needed some rationale for why some kind of malady or disease had, had befallen them. Then you, you shift to uh, the 1800s, you know, 1800s in literature, where vampires kind of take on this kind of um, suave and sophisticated uh, demeanor, um, where they're where now they're kind of infiltrating parties in high society, and that resonated with Victorian readers, you know. And nowadays, um, you know, you often uh, you often see this focus on the immortality of vampires. Um, a lot of shows kind of really dwell on that fact. And I think that resonates with people today because, you know, we don't need to explain, um, we don't need to explain diseases and stuff like that anymore with vampires, but science hasn't yet conquered aging and death. So the notion of this being that can circumvent that, I think resonates with people. And I think what also resonates with people is that by circumventing it, the vampire is also cursed. So maybe there's kind of a lesson in there that nature shouldn't be subverted. 
Um, so I think vampires will continue to change and adapt um, as sort of new authors take the vampire and uh, kind of, you know, alter them in ways that will reflect with, you know, audiences and readers of the future. Very cool. And your website is places of lore, uh, locations of lore.com locations of lore.com. And your uh, book is uh, vampires of lore. Uh, what's the best uh, place that uh, people can pick that up if they're interested? Sure. Uh, you can find it really on all kind of the major online booksellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, you can, uh, I think there was last time I checked some Barnes and Noble actually had it in stock uh, in like the New York and LA areas. Um, if you uh, want to get it from your local, local bookseller, you can probably go there and ask and they can probably uh, get it in for you. Very cool. AP, thank you again so much for coming on. Very interesting information. Love to have you back on sometime in the future. Oh, thank you so much for having me.